I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. So far in our series in Judges, we looked at an overview of the book where we saw what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And in chapter 1, we saw the overview of what was conquered and what wasn't of the promised land. Chapter 2, we saw a review of the cycle of revival and failure in Israel. And now in chapter 3, we get into the meat of the book where the events start happening. And I've titled this message, The Lord's Testing, What It Means and What It Does Not Mean. Uh, those of you who are in the first through sixth grades, we're glad to have you here for the summer. Um, I will try to tell you where we're headed and then go there and then tell you where we went, okay? And that might even help some of us older ones. Um, when we make half-hearted repentance, we create a mess. Okay, is that, is that helpful? That's kind of the overview of this chapter. When we make half-hearted repentance, we create a mess. Have you ever heard of foxhole praying? You know, you're in deep trouble, and you're like, man, there's no way I can get out of this. God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll love you forever, you know, kind of thing, right? And there are times where uh, all of us have been in those moments of foxholes, the deep, dark, difficult time. What's interesting is that some foxhole prayers are indeed life-changing. We pray those prayers and it transforms how we look at life. There are others, other times where people pray foxhole prayers and they get out, God delivers them out of the trouble they're in and then they immediately forget what had happened. And it's almost like it never even happened. They, they, they've just got amnesia about the way in which God remarkably delivered them in their lives. And sadly, the nation of Israel is in this latter category. They pray foxhole prayers over and over again and forget the deliverance of the Lord and resume, in fact, in many cases, even worse behaviors and activities than they had at the beginning. And so what we're going to see here in this chapter are three judges, three deliverers, and it's like the same problem and the same solution only to head back into the same problem over again. And what we're going to do at the end is look for the hope. Where is the hope found? So, I'd uh, like to ask you to stand. We'll read verses 1 through 6 while we're standing, and then we'll be reading the rest of the chapter as we make our way through the message, and I won't have you stand at those parts. Um, those of you who aren't typically a part of East White Oak uh, need to know that quite often, pretty regularly, we stand for the reading of Scripture. We do so out of kind of the same spirit of the nation of Israel in the days of Ezra who when uh, he read the scripture, all the people stood to hear. It's like saying, God, we're listening to your word right now. We're paying attention. Judges 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left 
to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamat. <clears throat> they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Please have a seat. Let's look first at the test and the failure to pass the test. The test was leaving Canaanites in the land. Now, we know from our previous studies in Judges that there were multiple reasons why the Canaanites were left in the land. One of them was that Israel didn't drive them out. They didn't obey. Another was that God left them there in order to test them. There's several reasons that are given, but here the focus is on this reason that God left them there in order to test Israel. And there were two purposes for God's testing Israel in this way. The first purpose is found in verse 2. It was in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war and to teach war to those who had not known it before. That is, after they had made the conquest of most of the peoples in the land of promise, there were still some peoples around and God left them there so that the people of Israel who hadn't experienced war would be able to learn war on a continuing basis to be able to defend themselves. Now, this seems weird, doesn't it? I mean, anybody here for war? No, most particularly those who have ever fought in war know that we want to avoid it as much as possible. And then there's also the, what I would call the idealism, the idealism of believing that somehow we could live in a world, apart from Jesus reigning, we could live in a world where there wouldn't be any war. You know, that's the theme of John Lennon's song, Imagine, right? Oh man, if we could all just, there wasn't any religion and there wasn't any problems and there wasn't any war, you know, there's kind of an idealism there. And yet, here on the pages of Scripture, God leaves these people in this land so that Israel would learn how to fight, how to conduct warfare. This tells us two things. In a sin-cursed world, war is inevitable. You're never going to be done with war until the Prince of Peace comes. There will always be wars and rumors of wars. War is an inevitable thing. It goes all the way back to the very beginning, doesn't it? What was it that happened after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? They had two boys, Cain and Abel. And what happened? <laughs> there was a war. <laughs> Cain killed Abel. It's an inevitability. The second th thing that we learn from this is that war 
is something that cultures need to learn in order to survive. That sounds harsh, but it is the reality of things. That if there is a culture that does not know how to fight for itself, that culture will disappear. Because there will be other cultures who know how to fight, who know how to do war, that will take them over. That's just something that happens. So, purpose number one of leaving the Canaanites in the land was so that Israel would learn how to conduct war. Second purpose is found in verse 4. These peoples that were left were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. It was to know whether Israel would really obey the commandments of the Lord or whether they would follow after the peoples around them. This is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because one does not know how one will respond to temptation until you actually face the temptation. This is where it's really interesting for us. We should be very careful about casting judgments on people when we say, oh, well, that would be something that would never be tempting to me, you know, kind of thing. Well, let there be something, and this is an older language, the Puritans use this, where you are sorely tempted a sore temptation. You know. Let you face that and then see how you are, whether you are as um, arrogant, perhaps, or high-minded. One does not know how one will respond until the temptation comes. Now, this isn't so that the Lord would know how they'll respond. He knows everything. It's so Israel would know itself, right, about its temptation, about its weakness, about its need for complete faith in their creator God. Now, those of you who have been Christians very long will immediately be having a conversation with me in this message. You will say, wait, wait, wait a minute here. Doesn't James chapter 1 verse 13 say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. How does what's being said here in Judges chapter 3 square with James 1.13? Well, it does so in the same way that the testing of Job does. God does not invite us or tempt us to sin, but for Israel, the entire land of promise was a testing ground. In fact, we could phrase it, it was the testing ground of their faith. Being in that land was the testing ground of faith for them to see the reality of Israel's faith in their God. You and I also have testing grounds, not living in a promised land, but the tests and trials that inevitably come to us all in a sin-cursed world. Let me give a, a small illustration which may help us. <clears throat> Your mother bakes some cookies and sets them out to cool with the clear instruction not to eat any of them. What is the test? The test is to know whether what you say about loving your mother is true or not. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me? 
So it's a test on whether how much you love your mother. Do you love your mother more than you love the cookie and its aroma wafting before your nose? Is your mother deliberately putting you in a position to sin? Not at all. She's simply doing what she is doing and you are there. God is doing what he is doing in his world and you are here. What that means is you will face tests. It's not God's fault. (laughs) God's doing what he's doing in his world and you are here and that means that there's going to be tests. At the end of this section, we have this description of intermarriage, don't we? Uh, They failed the test. The people started falling in love. Jewish boy falling in love with Canaanite girl, Canaanite girl falling in love with Jewish boy. They start intermarrying and as a result start taking on the gods of the peoples around them, the Canaanite gods. You see that in verse 6. Daughters took for wives, own daughters gave to Canaanite sons, and they, Israel, served the gods of the Canaanites. Now, this is in clear violation of of several scriptures on intermarriage with the Canaanites. Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7. Let me just read one of them for you from Joshua 23, just a couple of generations before this passage in Judges 3. Joshua 23, verse 12. If you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. How clear could God be? (laughs) He's as clear as crystal on what not to do, what will happen if you do it, it's, it's, it's clear. He even gives why it's so important to watch out for it. And yet, Israel lives and intermarries and serves other gods. It's important at this point that we understand a little bit of the history of interpretation of this passage and others like it. There were many people, and they are wrong, and they will pay for it before God. That's why it says, don't let many of you be teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment. These people who taught what I'm about to share with you are wrong, and they will stand before God and be judged for it. This text is not about interracial marriage. It is not about that. That's not the problem here, that we've got people from two different races that are coming together to, to, in marriage. That's not what this is about. Um, to help us understand why, I'll draw your attention to a story that happened in the time of the judges that we went through just a couple of years ago. There was a woman from Moab named Ruth, and she ends up marrying an Israelite guy named Boaz. And that marriage is blessed and wonderful. (laughs) 
Why? Because what's at issue here is not about race. What it's about is who are you worshiping? That's what it's about. And so the challenge here is that the people of Israel were intermarrying with the Canaanites and notice the phrase at the end of verse six, and they served their gods. That's the issue. And so, of course, if we're going to draw any contemporary parallel here, what we would say is just how important it is that you marry someone who is not only professing a faith in Jesus Christ, but is also helping you to become a more white-hot worshiper of God maturing in Christ. If you can't answer that question fully and wholeheartedly, yes, they are helping me become a more white-hot worshiper maturing in Christ, do not marry that person. That's what this is about. Now, there's all kinds of challenges and choices of living in the world, aren't there? Israel living around these, these Canaanites had some challenges and some choices, and they parallel some of ours. Let me give a couple of them. First, uh, the issue of being too isolated or too connected. On the one hand, you don't want to get too isolated from your world, like you're just scared of everything and you don't have any interaction whatsoever. On the other hand, you don't want to be so connected that you become like the peoples around you. And so, just as Israel faced that, we have that challenge as well. Being in, but not of the world is how many people describe it. That's indeed a, a great challenge for which we need ardent prayers that we don't let subtly the world squeeze us into its mold, but at the same time, we recognize that there is a purpose for us being with the people that we are around. Second challenge or choice living in the world. Um, I don't know of anybody who doesn't want to look good or anybody who doesn't want to be liked. But the challenge is making that a priority of looking good or being liked versus being on mission and seeking to be a worshiper. You see, what happened in Israel was that they wanted to look good with the Canaanites around them. Uh, they wanted to be liked by the Canaanites around them. And so then what did they do? They became like Canaanites in their belief system and in their affections. And they lost sight of the Lord. And we too must be careful in our desire to look good or wanting to be liked that we lose sight of our mission, which is to make disciples of others, that we lose sight of our focus which is to seek to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. Well, this is the overall picture from Judges chapter 3. Now let's dive into these three judges. And the author of the book organizes these judges geographically. That is, that there's an oppressor that comes from the north, there's an oppressor that comes from the east and the south, and then the third one uh, deals with an oppressor that comes from the west. And you might say, why does he organize things geographically? And what's fascinating to me is I didn't see any commentator who understood this, um, which means that all commentators are just what they are, commentators, okay? Um, <laughs> 
It's important to know the directions and why the author chooses to organize the chapter this way. This is a land that God has given. It is a testing ground of faith. This land is important. It's the way in which Israel's going to express its faith in God or not. And so, when the author's going to describe their lack of faithfulness, how's he going to organize it? By the way in which there's pressures brought to bear on the land from all directions. So, verses 7 through 11 we're introduced to uh, Otniel and an international issue. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtarot. Baals are the male deities of the land. Ashtarot are the female consorts with those male deities. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Otniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was on him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Otniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This oppressor from the north... Now, this is something that hadn't happened in Israel's history thus far, that we have an international power. Everything to this point had been local powers. And here's something that's just a remarkable fact of history. God sets up kings and he brings them down and Israel hadn't faced any international superpower to this point. In fact, from about 1450 B.C. until about 1200 B.C., the international powers of Egypt and Mesopotamia were pretty quiet. And that was exactly the time when the exodus and the conquest by Joshua and the settlement of the land took place. It was a grace from God. He caused those international powers to be caught up in internal difficulties. This is provable historically by the records that have been found. And God orchestrated it. But now, here in this time of Otniel, there's a brief moment where an international power comes down and causes problems. His name is Kushan Rishathayim. Nobody names their children that anymore. I don't know. And, uh, and he's the king of Mesopotamia. He's an international ruler. And God has brought an international issue into the land in order to cause Israel to recognize they need to depend on him. And so we have the same kind of story that is summarized in chapter 2. Verse 7, Israel does evil. Verse 8, Israel sold into the enemy's hand. Verse 9, Israel uh, uh, cries for help and God raises up Otniel as a deliverer. Uh, verse 10, God supports that deliverer and uh, the enemies are given into Israel's hand. And verse 11, the land has rest and the deliverer dies. There's nothing flashy from Otniel here. There's no great story of remarkable, miraculous deliverance. But there's nothing evil either. Instead, we have this comment about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him. Let's talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean. The Spirit of God did not indwell Old Testament believers. 
Instead, the Holy Spirit would come upon a small minority of Old Testament believers and only for a time and only for a specific purpose. So, what it doesn't mean is this is not a pattern that we should seek. It doesn't exist now. In fact, I would suggest to you that every believer in this room has more of the Holy Spirit than any Old Testament believer had. Because Jesus promised him in John 14, I'll send the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. All were made to drink of one spirit. And so we have the Holy Spirit as a constant indwelling presence in the believer's lives. That's not true in the Old Testament. In fact, I believe that the Old Testament uh, believers were aware when the Spirit came and when he went. Think, for example, when David had the Holy Spirit come upon him to equip him to be king of, of Israel. And then he sins with Bathsheba. And what is his prayer in Psalm 51? Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why would David pray that? Because he knew what had happened to Saul. When Saul had disobeyed the Lord, we read in 1 Samuel 16, 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's the oppressor from the north. Now we're going to look at the oppressor from the east and south, uh, the king of Moab and uh, his alliance that is arrayed against Israel. As I read this, understand that there's some R-rated portions here that only fifth and sixth grade boys will enjoy. <clears throat> Everybody's listening now. <clears throat> Judges 3 verse 12, the people of Israel again what was, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord and he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit, that's 18 inches in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it 
into his belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they had saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sierra. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. <clears throat> so what we have here is in t- verses 12 through 14, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, an oppressor comes from the east and the south, that's Moab and the Amalekites and the Ammonites, all those people are on the east and south of Israel. And there's a deliverer who's raised up in verse 15, uh, a man who is of the tribe of Benjamin, and the word Benjamin means son of my right hand. So do you catch the irony? A left-handed son of my right hand, okay? Um, This left-handed guy um, is the deliverer. Now, it's true that the left hand is regarded as dirty or less honorable in the ancient Near East. It's still true in many parts of the world today. And it's also true the irony of son of my right hand. But in the absence of any specific statement about this, it seems to me that the marking of this detail that Ehud is left-handed is really more of an explanation of how the deception could actually work in hiding and pulling out the sword than it is anything else. When we look at verses 16 through 23 and the R-rated nature of that description, if we were to put it in at least in film, we have to ask the question, why? Why does the Bible do this? The reason is that the Bible deals in the fact of human sinfulness. Here in the Judges, even the good guys are going to look pretty ugly. Notice in this whole section how few times the Lord is mentioned in the account. Even in a deliverer, which God himself... um, has, has raised up, when God is set aside in a culture, there are all kinds of compromise that's confusing. Note, for example, the idols in verse 19 and verse 26. Ehud comes and he d- delivers all the money to Eglon. He's on his way home. He passes by the idols and he lets all the guys that were carrying all the goodies to Eglon go. And he says, I'm going to come back. i got some more to say to you, Ehud. I've got a message from God. But notice nothing happens to those idols. Likewise, after he assassinates Eglon, he's leaving and he passes by the idols again with no description of either their removal or destruction. So it's a complicated mess when we have half-hearted repentance. Even the good guys are bad guys. 
Now we have to deal with the ethics of assassination here, don't we? Is it always right to assassinate opponents to your culture? Well, that would seem weird. Is it never right to assassinate opponents to your culture? Well, that would seem strange too. The answer is it's a very difficult question, one that reveals that there is no truly perfect way out for a culture once it commits to run away from God. Once you commit to run away, running away from God, there's no perfect way out. It's a mess. The path, even back, is filled with ethical dilemmas. And there are parallels here between this assassination and Joab's assassinations of Abner and Amasa in 2 Samuel 3 and 20, and those are not positively described. Ehud escapes, and there is Israel's victory, and there's a humorous, there's a humor here in verses 24 to 26. So Ehud has done the deed, he shoves the sword into Eglon and goes over the hilt even, and the fat closes over it, and then there's this description, and the dung comes out. And what we have to remember is that this has got to be in the heat of summer, and they're up on the cool part of the roof because it's where you could get the breezes coming off the Mediterranean. Eglon is a king and he lives like a king. And there's a spot up there where he can go to the bathroom, okay? And there's a little place that's lockable and all of that. And he's up there and, and, and Ehud kills him there. And all his dung comes out. And then the servants come and they see that the doors of the roof chamber are locked. They thought, well, he's relieving himself in the chamber. Why do they think that? because they can smell it. <laughs> the Bible is very stark in how it describes things. It's a humorous depiction of how Ehud bought time. And in verses 27 to 30, uh, Israel rallies around Ehud and defeats Moab. And here's something that's fascinating. The book of Ruth, which we mentioned earlier, was likely written after this period of time. Can you see why the people of Bethlehem might have been suspicious of a Moabite coming into their town. Now we come to the oppressor from the west, and it's just one verse. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Unlike the dramatic story of Ehud with lots of detail, Shamgar is very briefly described. He's described as the son of Anat, who is, Anat is a Canaanite deity, which suggests that Shamgar may have been part of that, uh, a product of some of that intermarriage, or at least a following after of other gods on the part of his parents. And he uses an unlikely instrument of war. He uses an ox goad. Why? Um, well, there was a lack of iron in Israel. And so they had no iron weapons. That's why Ehud had to fashion for himself a sword. Um, what they had was a few iron farm tools. And Shamgar uses a farm tool to save Israel from the Philistines. An ox goad is a stick about four to six feet long with a metal tip on it. And he uses that to kill 600 Philistines. Now we'll talk more about the Philistines when we get to Samson. But the fact is that God saves in surprising ways. We should look for surprises from God 
they usually come from what's at hand. Shamgar had an ox goad, and he used what was at hand to accomplish this deliverance. How much time do we spend saying, if only? If only I had more time, I'd be a better dad. If only we had more staff, our church would thrive. If only we had more patriotic citizens, our country would be better. If only we had more money, our family could have more uh, joy. If only, if only, if only. This, This one verse tells us that we should look for surprises from God, and they are from the things that are at hand. As we finish this chapter, I want to ask you this question. Where is the hope here? Especially if we've made such a mess of things ourselves that we now also have no clear, perfectly pure solutions to the challenges that we or others have created. Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus, who is a deliverer, a judge, completely different from Atniel or Ehud or Shamgar. He's different. He is a deliverer of the first order. He's a deliverer where there will never be a time when turning to him will make things worse. Oh, there are times where turning to him will make things feel worse, but there's never a time where turning to him will make things worse. Israel's problem was that they made half-hearted repentance the order of how they lived. And that created messes that their foxhole prayers, even in God's grace, would answer, but each time it got more and more messy. Will you take the challenges that life brings you and make a foxhole prayer as it were, but learn from it by saying, I will turn to the true deliverer, Jesus Christ, because he can take that knot that you've made of your life and he can undo all of it. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about this, we pause. We think of the messes we've made of our own lives. We think of how we have been half-hearted in our repentance. How even at times we've presumed upon your grace and we're thankful for how you've delivered us, but then we forget you. Lord, help us to learn this lesson from Israel and to seek a judge, a deliverer who never fails. Help us, Lord, to not say if only, if only we had this or had that, but that we would take what you've given us in this moment and put it to use in your service and that our lives would be an act of worship of our Savior our King, our Judge, our Deliverer, even Jesus. And Lord, I pray that those who've never put their faith in Jesus would see that in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They would put their faith in Him, asking Him to forgive them of their sin by what He did at the cross. If you've never done that, do it right now. 
Lord, in this quiet moment, we know we've made a mess of things. We know we've been half-hearted. But the place to start isn't by trying to undo that mess. It's by running to you. And there's never a time where running to Jesus will make things worse. Even though it may feel worse because they're going to feel the, the pain and pressures of, of what it means to wholly be devoted to you, Jesus, would you, in your kindness, do a work of grace in our lives that we may be your people, living for your glory, worshiping your holy name, You are our King, our Savior, our Deliverer, our Judge, our Brother, our Friend. Amen.